Hello, and welcome to The Taproot. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. While over 50% of biology PhDs identify as women, in 2010, they only made up about one-third of assistant professors. This means we are losing talent, diverse viewpoints, and well-trained people. At least in part, this is due to conscious and unconscious discrimination against women. Today's guest, Dr. Gina Baucom from the University of Michigan, has been an outspoken advocate for men taking a more active role in inviting women into the room, as well as moving over to give them space at the table. She has a lot of great advice, so let's get the conversation started. Gina Baucom, welcome to the Taproot. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you here. Just a little bit of background on Gina. She got her bachelor's in ecology and evolutionary biology from the University of Tennessee, followed that up with a PhD and a postdoc at the University of Georgia. And then she moved for three years as an assistant professor in the biological sciences department of the University of Cincinnati, before moving to her current position where she is an assistant professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Michigan. She is widely published and has a great CV and is also a very active Twitter participant, and we're going to talk about that, I'm sure. And the paper that we are going to be talking about today is from 2017 in Ecology Letters, and it's called Shifts in Outcrossing Rates and Changes to Floral Traits are Associated with the Evolution of Herbicide Resistant in the Common Morning Glory. And so, Gina, usually we, we ask the guests to give us a, a short summary of the paper. Could you tell us what this paper's about? Sure. When I was a graduate student, I had this idea to look at the relationship between the mating system of a plant and the level of herbicide resistance. But I didn't actually get to start it until I was an assistant professor. But Effectively, I was reading a lot of Yanis Antonovic's work. He showed these relationships between plants that had adapted to heavy metals. Those that were heavy metal adapted tended to produce seed from self-fertilization more often than those that weren't adapted. And I thought this was really cool, and it could be analogous to um, uh, the herbicide uh, resistance evolution. And so we have all these populations of morning glory in the southeast and the Midwest. We collected seeds from these populations. We assessed their level of resistance to Roundup. So some populations we found 100% of the individuals survived the field rate of Roundup, whereas other populations were highly susceptible, right? So there's variability there. And then we also assessed the mating system using uh, a marker-assisted studies. And we found that the populations that were the most resistant also tended to produce seed from self-fertilization more often than populations that were susceptible. There's a couple of reasons that this could happen. One is just reproductive assurance. So if you're an individual that's resistant to an herbicide, it makes a lot of sense that you'd also be selfing uh, if everyone else is dead. And then another reason could be, you know, maybe there's a mechanism that uh, works to reduce the amount of susceptible pollen that's coming into the stigma of, of the individuals. And so uh, we assessed this with molecular markers. And so after we showed this relationship, we wanted to see if we could identify a floral mechanism that was re responsible. So morning glory is a hermaphrodite species, it has both male parts and female parts on the same flower. So we looked at the distance between the, the anthers and the stigma to see if resistant populations, herbicide-resistant populations, had a really low anther stigma distance. So, you know, maybe those anthers were sitting right on top of the stigma. And we did find that. We found that the most resistant populations had a really low anther stigma distance. But we also found it was a kind of complicated relationship because we also found that 
the most susceptible populations showed a lower anthrostigmatistin. So we've worked with that a little bit more, and we found that other environmental factors are influencing the, the floral uh, traits, whereas the level of outcrossing or the outcrossing rate from markers really is uh, dependent on or related to the level of herbicide resistance in the population. So we, we're going to drill into those relationships uh, a little bit more in the future. That's really cool. So um, how did you settle on Morning Glory? This seems like a really great system. Did you always know that this was going to be your study system? Um, no. So uh, I started graduate school and I wanted to work on seed banks. So I went and I started to collect some soil samples from the plant sciences farm at UGA. And I was talking to one of the field managers and he said, you know, we think these morning glories might be evolving resistance to herbicide, specifically Roundup. And, you know, and I went back and I talked to Rodney about it. And he said, oh, you've got to work on this. It'll be a nature paper. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Those were his exact words. We didn't end up getting a nature paper, but I, th I think we've done pretty well with it, so it's okay. How do you guys actually measure it? I mean, is this all hand measures of the flower morphology or is this? Yeah, yeah. So, so the... Uh... <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot of flower measurements in this paper. Yeah, there are. I, I had a just an amazingly dedicated postdoc and undergraduate that did all of this work, Adam and, and Eva, uh, by hand. And we weren't actually doing a lot of picture taking and and automatic phenotyping. Uh, they just had some calipers and they and they measured all the flowers. And now I feel really bad about it, but but they did an excellent job. So you have all these populations that you had to go out and get. So that means that you're doing a fair amount of field work, which there's been a lot of attention on that more recently. What are some of the challenges in, in doing all this field work that you found? Based on some of the experiences that I had as a, a grad student, I pretty much insist that if anyone's going out to do these collections, they take a buddy with them. Because I, you know, I ran into a couple situations where one example was I was collecting from a farmer's field it was early in the morning. It was like nine in the morning. And this guy runs by, he's jogging and he waves me and I wave back. And, and then he comes back maybe like 10 minutes later in, in this like red convertible car. Oh <laughs> and God. he starts, yeah, he starts talking. He's like, so, you know, he wanted more information about what I was doing and blah, blah, blah. And he was very friendly. And then he's like, well, can I take you out for breakfast? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, here I am. I'm completely alone in the middle of Tennessee somewhere. No one else is around. And he very politely said, well, thank you, but I really have to get my work done. And he, he drove off. You know, it could have been a, like a much more terrible story. There was an article that came out about sexual harassment in field work. The safe study. Yeah. Tell, tell us what that is. I'm not. So that was uh, Kate Clancy and Robin Nelson and uh, Julian Rutherford. Katie Hindy, that was the other author. So they showed that in field conditions, uh, about 64% of respondents reported experiencing sexual harassment, whereas 20% of respondents reported sexual assault. Like, what? So physically assaulted, physically or sexually assaulted. Like those numbers are, that's crazy. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that, was, that report was really a watershed moment, I believe, in science where really changed a lot of the dynamics, definitely, I think, at field stations um, and, and people's just acknowledgement of, of the problem. So um, I was watching something about Eleanor Holmes Norton. She chaired the Equal uh, Opportunity Commission. She was appointed by Jimmy Carter. And she actually developed the first guidelines on sexual harassment in the workplace, which were later on affirmed by the Supreme Court. 
putting together sort of what sexual harassment is and means for women, I think was one of the first watershed moments for, for people to be like, oh, wait, that is improper behavior, and I can report that. Interestingly, these complaints doubled after Anita Hill's testimony. First of all, you have to educate people that might not realize, okay, wait, this behavior that kind of has always happened to me is, is bad, is incorrect. Right, I don't have to put up with it, or I shouldn't have to put up with it. Yeah, and then there needs to be moments where people realize that they can report it and it will be taken seriously. And so I think the safe work feeding back into that was a moment of clarity for everyone saying, whoa, wait a minute, we can't have this. I think that's true, but I think, right, this isn't something that like undergraduate on a field station who is struggling with it, this is not I mean, it's her problem in the sense that it's affecting her, but it's our problem in that we need to fix it. And that is something that I think is new. And I feel like you have something to say about that. I've been thinking a lot lately about how to interact with specifically white men and get them involved in the process of thinking about equality for both women and underrepresented minorities. And I've been sort of thinking through some thoughts called give me your allyship, not your bullshit. <laughs> and these are some broad areas where I really think that, that white men need to contribute to. So first of all, I think what we need to think about is that we're the largest sociopolitical landscape that we're experiencing right now, right? So the current administration is not on the record for admitting to sexual assault. The administration is working to roll back many of the actions of the previous administration, which include equal pay for women at work and LGBTQ protections. So these are clear signals from the government that women and minorities are not the supported demographic, right? So what does that do? People that are recognizing that, hey, there's sexual harassment and violence that's been happening at work. In addition to that, there are other sort of more pernicious things that I think women and underrepresented minorities are exposed to. So differences in publishing rates, differences in granting rates, differences in collaboration. Men are more likely to collaborate and share more with other men than with women. You know, women might do more service work. And I think the important thing is this is all backed up by data. Yes. This is the thing that has really struck me in these debates is that when you really look at it, the data is just so... Clear. Overwhelming. F***ing clear. (laughs) (laughs) It's clear and overwhelming. Yes. And, um... And fits with everyone's experience. I've now been in science for over 20 years probably puts me into old white male category now Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and everywhere i've been i can give you examples that i have seen right not that people have done to me but just that i have observed and right and so when the data backs that up it's just you have to act on it so i had this experience this last summer where i was at the evolution meetings and i asked a friend uh who was a white guy if he was going to go to the diversity lunch at the meeting. And he said, he turned to me, he was like, no, that's more your thing. That's not my thing. Right. And then, and then <laughs> I got to the diversity lunch and I look around and it's really filled with women and, and minorities, right? So human there and women that were there are the ones that you often see talking and thinking on this. So it's kind of like the same men that are involved. And what this, the message that this sends is that, making a more inclusive academy is really the work of women and minorities. And for me, it was particularly annoying in this case because my friend's lab is made up of all women and it, and it has been for years. So here I am, this you know untenured professor. I'm spending time, energy, and focus 
on making the field a better place for students and, and for people that are coming up behind us. But then on the other hand, I've had white men contact me and say, hey, I really want to work on this issue. I want to increase the representation of women and minorities in my field. What do I do? And so I've been thinking recently on, on how to do this. I've got a couple of goals, and I think I might be writing a blog post about this soon. But first, I want to convince men that they need to get it together and to act, <laughs> right? <laughs> if they want to combat inequality, you have to act. First off, you have to admit that it's a priority. Right. And you have to make time and space for it, just like exercise. I want to discuss the things that men can do to combat the inequality. And these two things are linked. Women and minorities should not be the ones taking on this work of equalizing opportunities within the field. Men need to really convince other men when their behavior is bad and to convince other men to step in and do this work. And, and I think the important thing to realize is that it is work and it's important work. It's, it's a component of supporting your field. When we all do better, um, everyone is working on their top at their top capacity, the field does better. It's a really important component of being an effective mentor. Like, what are you showing to your students? And this is scholarship. Thinking about inequalities in the field is an active area of scholarship. Ben Barris has this really amazing quote that I love. Uh, he said, when it comes to bias, and it seems that the desire to believe in a meritocracy is so powerful that until a person has experienced sufficient career harming bias themselves, they simply do not believe it exists, right? And I think that kind of speaks to the central problem that you don't really believe it exists until you feel it. Well, also, it's to our advantage to not believe it, right? So it's much easier for me to think that everything, all the good things that have come my way were earned by me and my special skills, and that there was no aspect of privilege to it, because then that means that I'm awesome, rather than that some aspect of it had nothing to do with me. Exactly. And that speaks to some level why men should be involved in this endeavor. So first, there's equality. Like if you just generally believe in equal opportunity, uh, you need to figure out if you are contributing to inequalities and figure out if you're an active contributor to inequalities. But kind of getting back to what you're saying, there's an unfair advantage. And one thing that has always struck me is that when women that I know that have won awards, they'll say to me, I, I want to make sure that I've won this for my work and not for, but you know, not because I'm a woman. And I've heard that so many times, but then you never hear the opposite. I've never heard a man saying, wait, I don't want to win that award if the playing field isn't equal between men and women, right? right? I can't accept that's, that. That's such a great flip. I love that, right? So there were five men nominated for this award, and I won it. That's great for me, but I don't want this because clearly... Only men were considered. Yes. Yeah, so there's multiple reasons why men should be very involved in this endeavor. Equality, bad for the field, and who would want an unfair advantage? I, I feel like right now we have four major areas to think through. And one is the fight against violence and sexual harassment in the academy. The second one is exclusion. Women are, are being excluded from important career building opportunities. The third one I call being in the room but not invited to the actual table. The fourth one is hired standards and the proving yourself again phenomenon, right? So these are four major areas that, that need some work. In terms of the fight against violence and sexual harassment, you mentioned the SAFE survey earlier. That was like a watershed moment, right? Where 
64% of people experience harassment in the field. There's also this Google Doc right now that's taking instances of sexual harassment that have happened in academics. And there's over 2,400 examples of sexual harassment and violence, and that's freely available. You can go and read of women's experiences. Something that happened this summer was I sent out this tweet asking for people to send me the examples where they've they've heard really terrible things that have been said about women. And I was just asking, I, I thought I would get maybe like 10 tweets back of, of some examples. And I was thinking of putting together a PowerPoint presentation for, for people. And then all of a sudden, you know, I started getting hundreds of comments back and it just went through uh, pretty much every area of science. It went through the dental field, the medical field. And I ended up with thousands of examples of terrible things that have been said and done to women uh, in professional settings. I wrote up a couple blog posts on that to kind of condense all of the tweets and give a little bit of context and some ideas for how to move forward and how to be an effective bystander. Like if, you know, you've, you've seen some of these things. Yeah. Um, but I'm also working on making this a, a publication. So writing this up into something a little bit more formalized. Uh, with some social scientists out of Canada. I think that's amazing. In, in what context were you planning to present these <laughs> these comments originally? <laughs> yeah. So this one example that I'm actually going to interweave into everything else that I'm going to talk about today, where the International Botanical Conference was being developed. It was held in China this past summer. And what a postdoc tweeted, there are no women keynote speakers. And there are all of these plant scientists that were invited to speak at this, this big conference, and there was actually zero women. So at first it was 10 men out of zero women. And that really struck a chord with me because we both know that the plant scientists have a lot of women scientists, right? Many. Many women scientists. And the senior, because they've, they've been in this field for quite a while. I mean, botany has been more open to women academics than, than other fields. I try to look up why that is and one of the examples that was given was, well, because women weren't taught to shoot game back in the 1800s, which, <laughs> which I think could be true, but is also just really weird. I think this, this is one of those that just is so freaking easy to fix. Right. And it's, exactly. it's, and I've done this now in multiple conferences. You just have to decide at the beginning that you're going to get an equal distribution of talks. And you have to make it a priority. And then what will happen is you'll it will work and you'll find that the average quality of the talks of the women is better than the men. Yeah, exactly. So this happened and, and it was just really frustrating. And I was talking to some women, okay, what, what can we do about it? And one of the things I was thinking about was, well, maybe I'll just come up with a PowerPoint presentation about why we should think about these biases, why women aren't given the opportunities that men are given. So, okay, well, I would have some examples of sort of the negative things that have been unfairly said about women that I've heard. Um, and I just wanted a few more examples. And then it just led to this tweet storm, uh, which kind of had me head desking for a few days and worrying <laughs> and, oh my God, well, I've triggered everyone in, in science and hopefully... Hopefully it'll be one of these things that leads to more positive than, than negative, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> In terms of some of the people I follow on Twitter, uh, one person I've learned a lot from is Needy Bala. And she has an excellent Twitter thread on how to confront and deal with examples of sexual harassment. Some of these are, you know, signal and identify yourself as someone who believes in the experiences of underrepresented people in science. Put a mission statement on your lab that has an anti-harassment policy. 
and you discuss this with every new member of your lab. Another one is let trainees know beforehand that you're someone that they can talk to if they experience or observe sexual harassment or assault. Familiarize yourself with sexual harassment policies at your institution. Consider talking to the Title IX office, but also be a little bit careful with that. Focus on the survivor and not your expectations of what they should or how they should act and let them know that you believe them and you'll support any decision they make. So that seems to me like a really nice group of, she has a longer tweet thread associated with that, but a lot of really good solid things for what men can do if they, for example, have a trainee that comes to them and says, I've experienced this form of sexual harassment or violence and I need help. So I would refer people back to that because it's just a very nice set of suggestions. Personally, I was always involved in sort of women's advocacy, but now I see working towards diversity, like racial diversity as well as gender diversity as like part of my job. But I think that's just in the last couple of years for me. Definitely. I have always been on that sort of activist level, but here at Michigan in our department, we have it written up as part of our, our annual review. We can put in there our outreach, our service to the field. And, and this stuff counts. So my, co- my colleagues made a conscious decision of saying this type of work counts as bettering the academy is really important to us. In addition to thinking about sexual harassment and sexual violence at work, we also need to think about exclusion. So women and, and underrepresented minorities have been excluded from important career building experiences. You see this in terms of being invited to speak in symposia. So I mentioned earlier, we we're talking about the botanical conference where zero out of 10 speakers were women. This happens at all universities uh, and in all fields. A recent scan of people invited to give talks in colloquia showed that uh, men gave more than twice as many talks as women. So in addition to being excluded from being invited to talk about your work, Women also uh, receive less awards. So only five women have won the annual NSF Allen Waterman Award in its 41-year history. That's nuts. Isn't it? And even women are quoted less in science stories. So Adrienne LaFrance looked at at some of the work that she had been writing up and saw that around 25% of the people quoted in the write-ups were women. Ed Young noted the same trend in his stories. And so they're actively starting to ask women scientists to speak more. And Adrian said something really interesting, which I think speaks to the problem in general. She said, I'm not excluding women on purpose, but I can't say it's an accident either. So you have to be actively involved in making sure women aren't excluded from these experiences. So what are some things that you know you can do as a, as a scientist, a male scientist, female scientist? You can suggest and enforce equal ratio of department conference speakers. So you can invite women to speak. You can invite underrepresented minorities to speak. When people ask you for a list of name of potential speakers, send a list of an equal ratio of men and women. Keep a list like this handy. Uh, use Diversify EEB. So this is the listserv that Meg Duffy and I created. It's a list of women and underrepresented minorities people in ecology and evolution that are willing and ready to give uh, conference seminars. Because when you get an invitation to speak at at a conference, it's nice, right? When you respond to the invitations, that's the point. You get invited, respond, say, that sounds great, but it is important to me that we are including everyone. And so I wanted to make sure that that's important to you and that you're having a diverse speaker lineup. And I will totally understand if you say, oh, we hadn't thought about that. 
can we rescind the invitation? Take me off the list. I'm okay with that. Having that as the default when you get an invitation to make sure you're saying that is important. Absolutely. That's a really great point. Another place where men can act is actively working to have women collaborators. So, you know, there's data showing that men tend to work more often with men. And and this is another way in which you're not excluding women on purpose, but it's not exactly an accident. You need to actively reach out and make sure that your collaborations aren't all with other men. Yeah. Yeah, Ivan, how many women collaborators do you have? Far too few. Well, I wasn't just focusing on Ivan. Yeah. No, but <laughs> he's the I mean, only man here, so we're using him as an example. And and I, you know, I, I, I know I haven't intentionally not collaborated with a woman. I also feel like many of my collaborations are quote unquote organic. This this sort of you know it sort of came together and we yeah watch out with that right. <laughs> but no, but it's with everything. Like I think the the take home across all of these things. The first one is don't f-ing touch people. <laughs> Beyond that is in the intentionality. Like if you understand that this is a problem, you have to think about it all the time and it's tiring and it's hard and we still have to do it. And we still have to do it. So Charles Blow, a columnist for New York Times, he had this really wonderful piece where he called it, it was called Checking My Male Privilege. And he says, effectively, I'm just paraphrasing him, work, it's hard work. I have to acknowledge this deficiency of my, my inability to always recognize other people's pain and other people's experience. What he says is, I have to forgive myself. If you're aware of these things and you're aware that you need to work towards promoting equality, you also kind of have to forgive yourself when you screw up. Yeah, and I think, again, old, white, 20 years in science, there are a lot of things that I've screwed up. Where possible, I should apologize for those. Right. I just want to go back to this, like organic development of collaboration. I just listened to this podcast about this woman who uh, started Stitch Fix and what her experiences were like trying to get funding for this incredibly successful company. And she had called out another one of these big Silicon Valley investor companies because the guy, he was publicly stated at a meeting oh, the way that I like to uh, decide which companies to invest in is like I just invite everybody up to my cabin in Tahoe and we just sit around in a hot tub and like we discuss stuff. And she's like, I'm eight months pregnant. I'm a woman. I am not having a meeting with you in a bathing suit. I can't have beer because I'm pregnant. And you have just basically told me I don't qualify for your funding. One of the most lovely parts about science is this part where you get to almost like an emotional connection with somebody who gets what you think is interesting. And I love that part. Um, But we have to be really careful that we, who those people are, because they are typically going to be people just like us. Right. Exactly. Right, Ivan? Yep. (laughs) Yep. I mean, I think that's exactly how it happens. I'm not excluding women on purpose, but I can't say it's an accident either. And so, so Elizabeth, you asked me earlier, what did I mean by when I said in the room, but not invited to the table? So I want to expand on that. So when I was talking about the botanical conference, how there were very few women keynote speakers, the organizers added a few to the schedule. They recognized this. They added some. From what I heard, there was some big dinner, apparently, and 
everyone was there and the women were in the room, but then there was this one table where all the famous guys were sitting <laughs> in plant biology. And I even heard it was like maybe on a pedestal, like raised up. And it was basically all the men chatting with one another and all the women were on the outskirts. Women evolutionary biologists that I've just been following my entire career and whose work is beautiful and amazing. And they weren't invited to the table. That makes me very angry. Like literally <laughs> right? not invited to the table. Like literally not invited to the table. And this comes out in, in other ways where, you know, we've made really important gains in hiring women as professors. I think uh, Jeremy Fox at the Dynamic Ecology blog showed that over the past few years, like 50 to 55% per year of the new hires are women in ecology and evolution. And that's great. But what we need to also think about are the structural inequalities that they're experiencing within this field. Um, but also, this comes out in terms of authorship. Some work, I think it's biomedical work, showed that for every 100 hours spent at work, female students are 15% less likely to publish a paper during their first year than their male counterpart. They're in the room, but they're not invited to the, to the table in the same way that, that the young men scientists are. You can also see this in terms of authorship position. So in high impact factor journals, women are underrepresented and hold just 18% of the last authorship compared to 30% across all positions. These kind of inequalities are more subtle, but they're still extremely damaging across the long term. So what are, what are some solutions to dealing with this, being in the room, but not invited to the table. Again, I think men need to stop collaborating with only men. So broaden your networks. When you're in these social situations, pay attention to the room. And it's important to think about these sorts of behaviors, what you're modeling to your trainees. Think about the optics of what your trainees are seeing. Are they seeing you actively including women? Do they see you actively publishing with women and writing grants with women? I was at a recent conference when it really struck me. It was a well-balanced conference. And some really great talks and some really bad talks and far more of the really great talks were given by women and far more of the really bad talks were given by men and there were some bad talks by women and great talks by men but it was striking to me the impetus to make sure it was a balanced meeting actually made it a better meeting scientifically and i and i think that's what will happen but it does mean that you are being intentional about including people how do you make it make it clear that it's because of their work. So I think this is where we need to sort of step back and realize that representation matters. If you have a woman or underrepresented minority who is building the symposia, then you tend to have much more equal ratios of men and women speakers. And so that itself could a representation signal could if someone is invited to give a talk by someone that's similar, a woman's inviting a panel of women to, to give a talk, uh, they might not immediately think, oh, I'm just being asked because I'm a woman. Personally, when I get invited to give talk, I don't care. I'm like, if they invited me because I'm a woman, that's great. And I'll try and do a great job so that I, I bring a good representation. Um, but, but not everyone feels that way. They want to make sure that, that their science comes first. So I think that's really, that's the primary concern but, but I think being sensitive to that is, is a really important thing. One of the things that we did hear about Diversify was that some people might not want to sign up on it, and specifically underrepresented minorities, for this very reason. They, they want to be recognized for their work and not their background. And, you know, I, I think that 
that is something that that we need to be aware and and you know take into account. Um, but I don't think we let it stop us from moving forward and making sure that we are always cognizant of the need for having um, uh, representative people around. And and I think once you once people get used to having women in positions of power and and get used to having underrepresented minorities in positions of power, um, a lot of this is going to go away. Gina, thank you so much for like just a fantastic and fact-filled discussion. I think it's, I just think it's so awesome the way you're combining your, your research program and your outreach program and that you have both these personal reasons and all this data-driven analysis. It's just an awesome combination of everything. Thanks for telling us about all of it. Yeah, glad to be here. So, uh, Gina, if people want to follow you, say maybe in preparation for the next Twitter storm, um, how, <laughs> how would they how would they follow you? Uh, so, my Twitter handle is G Bauckham, so G B A U C O M, and I'm pretty much on there every day. <laughs> Ivan, what about you? I am also on there pretty much every day at Baxter Twee. That's T W I. And you can find me on Twitter um, at, at EHaswell. Uh, you can also find the Taproot podcast on Twitter at, at Taproot Podcast. We also have an email address, which is taproot at plantate.org. Um, with that, I think we'll sign off. Thank you, Gina, and we'll see you next episode. Root is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week.